0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. And if you've been listening to any of these monologue dialogues that I have with myself, you'll know that I'm also Jeffrey Bishlove. You might say something of an alter ego for the purposes of this conversation today. I'd like to talk about the map of all maps of consciousness. Sometimes this is referred to as Indra's web. For those of you who don't know, Indra is the king of gods in the ancient Vedic religion of India. Indra is the god most often referred to, for example, in the Rig Veda, which is probably the oldest of the scriptures that we have from ancient India. Indra is actually very similar to Zeus or to Thor. In fact, it's quite interesting, and we've pointed this out in other interviews, that the ancient Vedic religious system is very similar to that of the Greeks and the Norse people, which shows the enormous reach of the uh, what's sometimes called the Indo-European tradition, which basically starts with from uh, in terms of modern knowledge to Sanskrit language. Indra, being the King of all the gods or devas uh, had a magnificent palace, and over this palace, according to legend, he constructed or had constructed uh, for him by the uh, great builder of the ancient uh, Vedas, Vishvakarma. The, he had uh, this web constructed, covered his palace, and the web is infinite. it goes in every direction without end. And in each node of the web is a jewel. And each of the jewels in every node of the web is a reflection of every other jewel. So, you might say Indra's web is something of a cosmic hologram. It is a reflection of all knowledge. And every piece of knowledge is intimately related to every other piece. Every jewel in Indra's web is a reflection of every other jewel in the web. And you could think of this as the map of all maps. Now, I want to say something about the history of religions in India because these days you don't hear too much about Indra. In fact, I'm not sure there's a single temple left in India that worships Indra, who was once the greatest of all gods. Now, this is very interesting because Indra had a magnificent ego, you see. He Conquered the great demon Vritra. Vritra was about to destroy all of humanity and Indra uh, killed him. And it was a very difficult battle, I can assure you. Indra himself was swallowed up by Vritra and uh, was only uh, saved because of the intervention of some of the other devas. But in any case, he achieved this great victory, and he decided to celebrate by building palace after palace to show what a magnificent god he was. It was getting to be rather taxing for poor Vishvakarma, the builder of the palaces, because Indra was never satisfied. No matter how great and magnificent the palace was built, Indra always wanted more and it was uh, beginning to wear on poor Vishvakarma, the builder. So, Vishvakarma appealed to Brahman, the uh, great universal principle and uh, Brahman uh, appeal to Vishnu, the deity who has many avatars, like Krishna, who, who reach out into the world. So, Vishnu set one of his avatars in the form of a very charming little black boy. Uh, and uh, Indra sees this little black boy outside of one of his palaces and he comes to him and he he's so charmed by this beautiful child. He says, look at this beautiful palace and the Little boy says to Indra, he says, My, this is such a marvellous palace. He says, No Indra in the past has ever built such wonderful palaces as you have and the great god Indra is puzzled what do you, what do you mean? No in other Indra I'm Indra, and the little boy says, Well." He notices a group of ants marching in to the palace through one of the doors, and the little boy says to Indra, do you see all these ants? Indra says, well, yes, and the little boy says, well, each of them was once an Indra. So the whole Vedic religion changed. Indra no longer became the greatest of all gods, the the biggest ego amongst the devas, so to speak, because the little boy was pointing to metaphysical principles that are embodied in the Hindu deities of Brahma and Vishnu. It's no longer a question of being uh, caught up in the realm of uh, Ego of conquest of possession and rebirth rebirth after rebirth. Because in the ancient Vedic traditions, Indra suffers rebirth after rebirth. He is not uh, above the cycle of life and death. So, uh, they were beginning to develop a larger view of reality in the uh, later phases of the religions of India. The concept of Indra's web, the Vast interrelationship of all knowledge, of all wisdom, has become very important to people, uh, especially holistic thinkers who like to describe it as a way of viewing the world. And there are many beautiful representations. I'll show you some of the graphics of Indra's web. And it's become a symbol for ecology, the interrelationship of everything, the holographic nature of the universe. Because every jewel in the web is a reflection of every other jewel. You could think of Indra's web essentially as being... Well, the map of all maps of consciousness, for sure, but uh, it could also be thought of as equivalent to the Akashic Records, or what William James once called the Cosmic Reservoir, in which all knowledge of everything that has ever occurred to any person or any sentient being anywhere in the universe is contained. This, I assume, is how remote viewers are able to access knowledge everywhere. It's because it's part of us. We are the jewels in Indra's web. Let me talk again about maps of consciousness. and I'm referring to particular maps, uh, maps of inner reality. I mean, you could think of physics itself as a map of consciousness. You could think of biology as a different kind of map of consciousness, or architecture as a map of consciousness, or literature as a map of consciousness. And these are all important. These are the subjects that are studied in our great universities. Every one of them is a map of consciousness. But, there are particular maps that are maps of inner space, and I'll just outline some of them. The I Ching, the 64 hexagrams of the Chinese I Ching, which is uh, called the Book of Changes, could be considered a map of consciousness. The 12 signs of astrology along with the 12 houses, the planets, and all of the relationships, aspects between the planets of astrology could be considered a map of consciousness. The writings of the ancient alchemists could be considered a map of consciousness, and Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychiatrist, took it to be exactly that. Well, Jungian theory, Freudian theory, are also maps of consciousness, inner space. You have the Freudian subconscious, for example, that includes repressed uh, memories and thoughts. And then you have the Jungian collective unconscious and all the archetypes. Well, that's also a map of consciousness. The chakra system of ancient India, the seven chakras that go up along the spinal column and other more advanced systems, some of them include over a hundred chakras in the human body that are thought of as transducers between the physical plane and and higher spiritual realms that 's another map of consciousness. The system of tarot cards is a map of consciousness, the tree of life of uh, the Jewish Kabbalists, Kabbalists, is a map of consciousness, the ten Sephirot, each of them in, in effect, exemplifying the different characteristics of the Olympian gods, or or the gods of any pantheon, whether it be Norse or Greek or uh, the pantheon of the ancient Vedic culture of India. That itself is a map of consciousness. And there are more sophisticated maps, such as the Christian Kabbalah, which attempts to merge the Hebrew tree-of-life diagram with the tarot system, a very sophisticated map of consciousness. The explorations of the heaven and hell reign realms by uh, people such as Swedenborg or Dante constitute maps of consciousness. The very abstruse and complicated metaphysical systems of theosophy and anthroposophy and uh, the teachings of Alice Bailey that are encyclopedic in length constitutes a map of consciousness consciousness. And as I've said, Indra's web could be considered the map of all maps of consciousness. And uh, the point that I want to make is that in Indra's web, everything is related to everything else. You can't say, I like this part of the web and I dislike that part. Because they're all reflections of each other. So, sometimes I have said uh, to people that my ideal for myself to love everyone and everything all the time, it seems inconsistent with the idea that you love the good and you hate the evil. You work against things that you think are wrong, evil, bad in the world, and you work for things that are good and positive. Both of those are true. At one level, in the level of duality, uh, things are divided. There is right and wrong, good and evil. At the level of unity, everything is a reflection of everything else. You can't separate them. So, to love the entire map of consciousness, to feel in love with Indra's web, to be totally in love with the life that we live – means that you have to love the fact that you dislike things and at the same time love the drama, love the things that you dislike, even while you love the fact that you hate the things that you dislike. It, it prods us to achieve what I would call a meta stance. and Now, this is getting to a deeper point I want to raise here, which is that the advantage of entering into these maps of consciousness to creating castles in the mind of of these maps, which is what ancient alchemists and esoteric cultures uh, around the world have done in different ways, building temples in the in the mind, so to speak, invisible temples, dialogues with invisible friends with devas with teachers it 's because. The imaginary maps that we form in our mind, whether it's astrological or the I Ching or, or the esoteric teachings of uh, Rudolf Steiner, they may seem very peculiar. Both Steiner and Swedenborg, for example, talk about the moon people. Well, you could say, yes, it's pure imagination, but the point is that once you create these maps in your mind, that pure imagination crosses over into a very delicate but important realm that the great philosopher Henri Corbin has referred to as the imaginal. It is an ontologically real realm It's not pure fantasy and pure imagination, pure fiction, not at all, and yet it lacks the uh, concrete tangibility of the physical realm. We can't quite touch it and measure it in the same way. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. It's very easy to access this realm and it can be very useful and very important. Years ago, I did an interview and, and in fact, I can link to it uh, right now, to my discussion of it in any case, where I was put into hypnosis by Marty Rossman. He was demonstrating the power of getting in touch with your inner healing advisor while under hypnosis – a pure act of imagination, you might say – and while I was In this state, and the whole thing was videotaped, a figure appeared. And The figure was wearing a toga. So, I assumed in my mind, my intellect is working. There's a figure with a toga and I'm thinking, I'd like to improve my public speaking abilities. Wouldn't it be great if my inner healing advisor, who's coming towards me now, approaching me in a toga, was the great Greek orator Demosthenes and he could help me become a better public speaker? And so, as Demosthenes approached, I began a conversation inwardly with Demosthenes, but he explained to me that he was not Demosthenes. Who are you then? I said. And he said, I'm Seneca. Well, I knew very little about Seneca, except Seneca was um, one of those ancient Roman people. I didn't know a playwright, a philosopher, hard to say. But there he was, and he was insisting, not Demosthenes. So, I said, well, okay, now that you're here, you're my inner healing advisor, what would you like me to do? And at that point, Seneca said to me, study my life. And that took me on a great adventure. I've reported on it elsewhere. I did study the life of Seneca, one of the most interesting people I've discovered in all of human history, a great source of inspiration, knowledge, and wisdom for me. I'm grateful that Seneca reached out to me that way. But one of the things that I learned about Seneca, a very unique person who actually ran the Roman Empire for five years when he was Nero's tutor during the time that uh, Nero was still a teenager and too young to run the empire himself. These were thought of as the Silver Age of Rome, some of the best periods in Roman history. But at the end of the day, Seneca and uh, Nero had a falling out. There was uh, some sort of a conspiracy, the Piso conspiracy, to murder uh, Nero. And Seneca was blamed for it because, I think, of his popularity. And uh, Seneca is at a dinner party with his friends. A centurion knocks on the door and tells Seneca, uh, at the command of the emperor, you must take your life now. And Seneca said to the centurion, well, can I at least make out my last will and testament first? No, said the centurion, you must take your life right now. So, at that point, Seneca turned to his friends, assembled for dinner together, and he said to them, I bequeath to you my life study my life. Those were his final words. I felt a chill when I realized that the words that Seneca spoke to me in a hypnotic state were actually the same as his final words. That, to me, was enough of a tangible handle. I realized I had transcended the realm of pure imagination, pure fantasy, and I had entered into the imaginal. And that's the value of uh, having a map of consciousness, having a, I'm going to call it a an imaginary realm, but if you build that imaginary realm, it will lead you into the imaginal. And The tricky thing is, let's take Rudolf Steiner as an example, a great mystic who developed uh, many concrete things, styles of architecture, sculpting, stained glass, medicine, education, biodynamic farming. The man was, in the minds of some people, a, a, a superhuman genius. And yet, when you study his writings, you'll see he has all of these metaphysical fancies about the fire spirits and the moon people and and on on and on. Uh, It was through this imaginary world that he built that he was able to enter into a transcendent realm. Rather intangible, not entirely tangible, but ontologically real. Indra's web. So, let me ask you, in closing, what are the fancies, the imaginary realms that you travel to in your mind and where do they take you? Do they take you to uh, transcendental realms yourself? I'll leave you with those thoughts and thank you for being with me. In fact, thank you for being with both of us. (music) The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website.